0: And welcome to the Nirvana Principles Show. I'm your host, Dr. Hassan Malik. I'm a trainee psychiatrist and electronic musician based in Northwest England. I'm passionate about making mental health concepts more accessible to the public, create conversations around psychology, and change perspectives on topics ranging from philosophy to psychedelics, aging to motherhood. I have the privilege of hosting this space on the first Wednesday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on Melodic Distraction Radio. Every episode has a featured guest to share their views, opinions, and expertise with us. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Harry Whitchell, Ph.D. in Physiology from University of California at Berkeley. He's currently an award-winning discipline leader in Physiology at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. He is a neuroscientist, author, broadcaster, and academic. His interdisciplinary research team studies the relationship between the mind and how we respond to the world with our bodies. He's won three national awards for teaching. Most recently in 2019, his team won an international award for research. His first book published in 2011, You Are What You Hear, How Music and Territory Make Us Who We Are, piqued my interest as a DJ and psychiatrist. He's been kind enough to join us today to talk about music and the mind. Welcome, Dr. Harry Witchell.
1: Hello, Hassan. And hello to all of the audience for the Nirvana Principle.
0: Your book was, uh, I think, tailored for someone like me. And I must say that it it kind of almost inspired the show where I thought that it had science in it, but it was also very applicable and it kind of enriched my experience of music.
1: It's very kind of you to say so. So the book, You Are What You Hear, How Music and Territory Make Us Who We Are. It's very important, this idea of social territory. So the, the goal of the book is to communicate that music gives us a... It doesn't make us happy. It doesn't make us sad. It's not one or another emotion. What it does is it either allows us to join in with this unusual territorial thing, which I call, in humans, social territory. Social territory is the idea that when music fits with your implicit, intrinsic understanding that it makes you feel more empowered and more like you belong to a group. So it creates group cohesion. This is uh, the reason that I went, went down the territory route is because, of course, we often think about music and territory when we see birds. So lots of, lots of animals, such as birds and whales, of course, we're familiar with, often describe or create territorial structures based on music. But I would say if you look at a man with a guitar, where a woman, of course, you know, strumming away up on stage, there's a kind of territorial activity to that thing. Hey, everybody, look at me. This is my place. And likewise, when you imagine a teenager uh, arguing with their parents, going up to their room and then slamming the door and turning the music all the way up, both that's telling their parents, this is my place. But it also is reassuring to the teenager, hey, this, I now am a part of something, even though before I felt like I was having difficulty.
0: So it's quite a book in depth. What do you think we're going to cover today?
1: I was hoping that we would talk a little bit about the power of music, what music can really do for us, for our society. Also, we might want to talk a little bit about why people listen to sad music. So what is this thing that music does for us? And where do we take music? It's inevitable that if we're going to talk about music, we'll talk a tiny bit about nature versus nurture. And I will, of course, say our relationship with music is nature kind of via mostly nurture. The way we feel about music is very nurtured. Hopefully, we sum up by saying what music can do for us and our hopes for music in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was also hoping that as a DJ and musician, I'm always curious as to why. I and a lot of my friends and peers prefer certain genres over others.
1: Definitely. I think it's a great idea to talk about music genre, which is very much related to nature versus nurture.
0: All right. So time for our first song. We'll be right back with Dr. Rachel. National anthems to lo-fi beats to steady and chill to, war drums on Roman galleys to the Glastonbury Festival. Music is intertwined with the human experience. Harry, why do you think music has become so important in current climate?
1: So there are two issues really happen. The, the, the first is music hasn't just become important, which is you know the, the, the earliest archaeological find for a human flute It's about 40,000 years ago. There were different finds in both Germany and Slovenia suggesting that humans have been using flutes way before recorded history. And I would, if it were me, I would guess that humans were probably using drums even before that, although they wouldn't have survived in the archaeological record. So humans have been using music for a long time and other animals also. Obviously, uh, passerine birds, but also a few other mammals do use music, but you're probably asking a deeper question, which is what's gone on recently that has made music even more exciting, uh, valuable, and in some cases problematic, because people use music both to bring each other together, but also to separate and to create boundaries between each other. And really what I would say is music is part of the Greater experience that we all understand each other. From. So, unlike previous, what's the, unlike previous generations, the most recent two generations have focused on both characterizing old, the older music and really developing upon it. So, if you think about the difference between, say, um, Mozart and Beethoven, right? so Mozart was he well, arguably the best ever, right? but he was really the master of his craft at the time. He really didn't change music in the 1700s whereas if you compare that with say Beethoven, there's a whole new idea, right? When Beethoven comes on the scene, he kicks off romanticism. I mean, you know, if if I had been living in the 1800s, the late 1700s and I'd heard Beethoven, I would have said I would have either said, "Wow, this is mind-blowing," or I would have said this isn't music, get rid of it. And this idea of different generations using music in different ways and some reinforcing and building or brewing toward new opportunities often is based on both political changes but also uh, instrumental changes. So, where we are now is I mean, obviously, I'd, we can't talk about the politics of where we are, but where we, I'm a U.S. national, and the politics of where we are is hat stand You know, it's, what are we, what's going on? Holy cow, guys, get a grip. You know, when I was younger, things made a lot more sense politically. There was a center point. But interestingly, when I was younger also, music was formulating it in many ways. The current canon that exists now was being created when I, I were a lad, when I was younger. And that's interesting because the 1960s represents really a cut point in music. That is, up until the, the, when I was young, the music of the 1940s, so 30 years before, would have been unthinkable. You know, it, it was a joke, 1940s music. And even 1950s music, when I was young, was considered kind of retro. Whereas now, when we look back 30 or 40 years, the retro music isn't thought of as woo retro, it's thought of more as part of a canon, the canon that we're still part of. In many ways, much of the music that we hear now is very related, and it's developing onward from what we already had. So, if you think about what was going on in the late 1700s, there was both a development of musical instruments, and dare I say it, a whole lot of revolutions. And those revolutions, my, i know I, I am against the revol. You know, the revolution where Karl Marx shows up and waves at you. I'm against that revolution. I think that you know, I'm against all that sort of violence. But I think that changes in the air. That young people are ready for change, and that the the musical instruments haven't quite caught up with that. I think that there will be a change, but right now we're still in this world of the electronica. So when I was young, there was Robert Fripp. I saw Robert Fripp doing uh, tape loops live in Berkeley. It was the most extraordinary thing, because you we walked in, and he was just there on stage, already with a tape loop, not talking, just re-taping, uh, you know, just adding loops. And it, uh, he, it was a crazy talk. I mean, at the end, he you know, he was doing a talk about music with graphs, you know, and PowerPoint. It was the strangest music concert I've ever seen, but it was Robert Fripp. This idea of retaping stuff is now what I see on the street. So here in Brighton, where I live, there's you know there are loads of musicians who are using boxes to recreate uh, one man sort of band sounds based on what essentially was Robert Fripp's old sound. So that's the beginnings of where where I think we're going next. We'll see if there are any other different instruments.
0: You you're approaching it more from a socio-political human progress going into going into humanity and how it changes. I was a bit curious that uh, like speaking from I guess from a, as a doctor's perspective, music I feel doesn't really serve any biological purpose in the sense that you know how food does or sex does is procreation, you need, there's a need there. Yet, since history, it has somehow sustained, it's been there. It wasn't a fad that was there for a little while, but it served a purpose. It seems to evolve with time. Is there some evolutionary or physiological, biological need for music as well within our own human consciousness or our human biology?
1: That's a great question. That's a really great. In some ways, you could make a similar uh, analogy between music and sex there, i say. Sex is obviously part of the species, but there are lots of people who never have sex. I mean, there are, there are the aces now and that sort of thing. And these are people who can survive. And likewise with music, there are examples of individuals. I believe Charles Darwin in later life refused to listen to music. Uh, he said that it made his mind have too rapid perambulations. So there are examples of people who are amusical or even anti-musical. It's, it's not that we don't have that kind of food water requirement for music, but culturally oh yes, so far as I know there isn't a single uh, culture that didn't, wasn't found to have some form of music, now the question is what is music and what counts as music is a different thing, so there are tribes in uh, the Amazon who um, have music which for to our ears would not I mean it wouldn't sound Western at all. It would sound more like a conversation. And yet if you look at it, it is music. So the the definition that I like for music is music is organized sound. And there's definitely to a lot of those kinds of music, music is organized. Your main question though is what is the role of music? Is it something that we is it something we really need? And the answer is absolutely culturally. So there are cultures, if the power of music is obvious, you know, it has so many benefits in terms of uh, how it's potentially used for health benefits, it's used for societal interaction, it's used for all those social territory things with group coherence that I was talking about, building groups up and making people coordinate their actions. So it's it's really important in that way. But it's not in the same it's not in the same league as food and water. It's not something that's essential for the individual, although we have a unique perspective now. So if you think about it, what we can do with music is we can play music to engage and change our own emotions, which, you know, the idea of having recorded music 150 years ago, that would have been, that would have been viewed as science fiction and utopia. And yet now we have music on tap, almost unthinkable in our advantage. It's really great, but it's interesting because it hasn't made society perfectly happy. Quite the opposite. We've become even more sort of blasé about music. In the old days, having any access to music would have been considered great. I mean, obviously, you think about these uh, traditions of the British Victorian life, where the ladies would have to be taught piano so that they could be musical and entertained because music wasn't available for everyone. You know, concert halls were a special thing and music wasn't, you know, music wasn't recorded. It had to be live.
0: There's also a, what's the word? People call it auditory cheesecake where it's just, it's like something nice and sweet to eat in your mouth. It's flavorful. But what would you say to people who say that this is just something which is pleasantly stimulating? and does not serve any purpose beyond it provides a source of leisure and pleasure?
1: There has been an auditory cheesecake argument from Steven Pinker, who's an anthropologist. And the reason he called it cheesecake is we evolved to be attracted to foods that had fat and sugars in them because they were nutritious and provided energy. But we've ended up loving cheesecake. But but no for those reasons, But no one would claim that we evolved, uh, you know, in ancient times to find cheesecake on the savannah. You know, that's not where we are. But to, to ask whether or not music has any role within humans, there's no question that music has a privileged auditory place in our society. That all of us have an instinctive understanding that music, particularly a kind of rhythmic sound and also uh, kind of consonant sounds are recognized by humans and a few other animals. We talked about gibbons, or birds, that sort of thing, that are recognized by some animals and us, and they're instantly recognized as different from any other sound, industrial sounds, or from uh, various kinds of nature non musical sounds, like trees. It is, okay. So Byron, Lord Byron, bless his cotton socks said something like, there's uh, music in the rush of wind through a rill, if only men had ears to hear. I'm sorry, I'm misquoting. But it's something like that. Um, And that Byron quote is the suggestion that if you listen for things, you can find the musical element in things. And it's true that there are people who listen to industrial, industrial music, and they'll listen to factories and go, yeah, man. It's like this factory is like, it's a sonic experience. What I mean by this is that you and I can go on the street and we can tell if there is one person making music, like one street musician, quite a long ways away. and We can pick that out from amongst all of the other sounds. So somehow, we, whether it's the auditory cheesecake or something, we have learned to recognize music as things with a regular pulse or tones, which are consonant. And we've learned to recognize those and pick them out. And if I had to guess, this is now, I'm speculating, yeah? If I had to guess, I would say that it's part of our tonal or timbral needs. So the, the single most important thing, I think, for us as a group species, and remember, music is really about people and conversation in groups, is you need to be able to recognize Family members and outsiders, and from the very, very before, from before you were born, when you were in the womb, and we know this because people have interestingly placed microphones in women's uteri, as you would do if you were a scientist. We know that it's possible to hear people uh, from when you are in the womb, so you get used to your parents' voice and your siblings' voices uh, from before you're born. And so as soon as you're born, you're able to use complex structures to recognize the timbre.
0: Sorry, what do you mean by timbre?
1: Timbre is the structure of the frequencies of sound. So there's a big difference between, uh, say, the timbre of a saw, which is sort of a, a rough sound, versus the timbre of a flute, which is a very beautiful and sonorous and regular sound. And recognizing these mixtures so every person's voice is, in some ways, unique. And recognizing those timbers of different people's voices, which we're all capable of doing, is really fundamental. And I think this is what I mean by both group coherence and empowerment, recognizing when you are part of the region you're supposed to be in. Whether that was always meant to be musical, or whether it is auditory cheesecake, a side effect of learning to recognize voices is tricky to say. But for what it's worth, my little friends, the songbirds, would say that what's the difference? The songbirds basically understand that music, you know, voice, the musical voice, and music are the same thing.
0: We're going to go to our next song and we'll come back and we'll talk about why do we prefer certain genres over others? Is it all nature? Is there some nurture in there as well? Stay tuned and we'll be back. Why is it that some artists are commercial and critical successes, while others are not? Is it the music itself they play, or how easy it is to sell or market their sound?
1: Rock and roll was this novel mixture between youth culture, musicians, and making money. And the people who made the money were often in Los Angeles. And they were really interested in making money. And after Beatlemania hit the America in the early 19, early to mid-1960s, there was a need for an American response to this, And that response was the Monkees. And, uh, you know, recently Mike Nesbitt, who was in many ways the most musically pure member of the Monkees, recently came to pass, I'm sorry to say. The Monkees were brought in as an instant American answer to the Beatles. They were just, they advertised for them and said, make a group. And, you know, two of them weren't really musicians. even They were actors. They were meant to be good looking and kind of English, you know, and that was enough. The problem was that they disagreed with their producer. And eventually Mike Nesmith went on to do his own thing and broke up the group. The producer, being so frustrated with not being able to control his musical act, decided that he would create a musical act with hand-drawn creatures. So he used comic book characters and created a, uh, a band that had a number one hit. I think it was number one hit, called Sugar, which was the Archies. And there were no there were no inconvenient musicians of this. They, they just had hired musicians for hire. And a bunch of hand-drawn people, you know, comic book characters, and that was a a way of briefly making money off of music without even having to have, you know, musicians get any credit. Some of
0: the, some of the bands, like like you said, it they reached like rock star status very fast within within a few within a few releases. And like it or not, a lot of it had to do with you know they were like young, handsome men, good-looking men, easy to market. So I'm like, okay, the music is decent, but it's not, you know, it's not phenomenal or earth shattering.
1: So one of the big questions I think you're asking is is there something to music's popularity that relates to music's excellence or goodness? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really it's a troubling question, a deep question. And I'll give you two quick answers. The first is from my own experience in bands. So I was in four different bands. And there's no question that the first band that was the most popular I've ever been in was when I was young. And had the, I was, the band had only one member who actually knew how to play an instrument. The rest of us were just basically, you know, playing along, helping, hanging on for dear life. Whereas, you know, the fourth band I was in, we often played for audiences of five people. But we were playing really sophisticated stuff, music and you know, strange, strange, uh, um, times like in 15 over 16 sort of really strange stuff uh, but it was very complex and enjoyable musically but it wasn't really what that man on the street or the young person on the street would ever want to listen to and I think that's really kind of telling is that what you want is music that is just challenging enough for large numbers of people to, this, I'm talking now about how to make money out of music not how to make beautiful music. You want music that's just challenging enough for people to be able to relate to it. And this, I think, this goes into something that in my book, "You Are What You Hear: Music and Territory," that this really relates to an idea of expectations. So when we talk about genre, genre is this interesting generalization, uh, a confluence between what the music kind of sounds like in terms of more or less consistent features. It might have certain kinds of instruments with tambourine uh, signatures. It might have uh, a certain kind of rhythm. So, for example, with the Andrews sisters, they, they were playing eight to the beat, right? It's a very particular backbeat that they were playing uh, with this uh, boogie-woogie from the 1940s. And that kind of sound was very recognizable, and they loved it. And for what it's worth, it is really beautiful when they sing like that, uh, over that boogie-woogie. So we've got uh, some musical things such as a certain kind of pulse. It might be fast, it might be slow. A certain kind of rhythm, it might be syncopated or not. Uh, we're talking about certain kinds of tempo signatures, which are based on certain kinds of music. And of course, there also would be, maybe there would be certain kinds of subjects. So if you're singing a country western song, it's going to be about my lover done left me, or you can take this job and put it where the sun never shines. You know, so there's certain consistencies that are recognizable. One of the things, in order to really discuss how genre works, I think we really have to talk about how categorization works. Do you mind if I, we talked a little bit about. Categories.
0: Most welcome. Most welcome.
1: Sure. With categories. A traditional Aristotle. Category, now we're talking about Aristotle. We've we've really lost the plot here. In an Aristotelian category, if you want to talk about what is a circle, it is a line with a consistent rotation around a specific point that's consistent. So the idea is every single aspect of a circle is always the same. So we have a definition of a circle where there are three or four properties and it's reliable. By contrast, there's another way of categorizing things. Rather than so, we could say, so how does that apply to music? Let's say that we said all country western music must be about, it must have a slide guitar and it must be about my girlfriend done left me. And that's not true. There are loads of examples where you'd say, oh, that's really country western music, but it doesn't fit into those both of those exact categories and this this relates to something that linguists like Wittgenstein would call uh, family resemblances. That's the idea that let's say we have a bunch of criteria for what belongs in a particular category of music. It may be that if you have all of the criteria are satisfied you'll have a central member the perfect country in Western song right that fits every one of those categories. But if you have something that fits only a few of them, it's still country-western, but maybe an, a, a less central example. So the, the example I like to give is with breakfast. When we talk about breakfast, it's a, a meal that's given it's in the morning, and it often has eggs, bacon, that sort of thing, maybe a bit of cereal. But how do we make sense of the words? And we, we, we've seen these words before. Breakfast served all day. Well, uh, that violates breakfast. Or well, what about, I had pizza for breakfast. Well, you know, that plainly violates another aspect. So you, you, It's the wrong kind of food. You Breakfast all day is the wrong time of day. And you can imagine this. Imagine at 6 in the morning, two, two gentlemen uh, bump into one another over a over in the countryside, over a lake where there's slowly steam is rising, one man is smoking a cigarette and he just looks at the other man and says, "Breakfast of Champions." What does that mean? I mean, it, it does mean something, and yet it's not a meal. It's not. It's not a food. It, you know. But yet we understand that these things. Obviously, that's a joke, Breakfast of Champions. But it's the idea that if you fulfill some aspects, some of the characteristics, you're in there. And so when we talk about you know your favorite music. So, Hassan, what's your favorite? What's your favorite genre?
0: So, I would say melodic house is my is my favorite or go to. So, what would
1: you what would you say would make the category of
0: melodic house? If I'm talking technically, i I'd, I'd need like a nice BPM. It'd be around 120. I'd want um, a lot of melodies in it. I'd want some kind of synth or some kind of instrument which evokes much more emotion.
1: Great. So. If you hear a song that kind of does that, but then drifts out of it briefly, so it violates some of your expectations, that's a way of, if you like, tickling people's interest. So you could play a piece of music that's absolutely reliable in your genre, and yet it might be a bit too typical. It might not thrill you. It's the way people play with the rules that make bits of music more attractive. And so I'll give you the, the example of quint the perfect piece of music is, of course, the perfect piece of music it would be a piece of music that has an absolutely regular pulse. It's going to be four to the beat, which is what we know about. It would have a melody where you only move one, one note up or one note down at a time. Maybe it would be that it would always start on the, on the downbeat, on the one, and every phrase would end on the one. And we're talking, of course, about twinkle, twinkle, little star. So twinkle, twinkle, little star is the perfect piece of music. If you just go through all of the, all of the traits of a piece, of what makes good music, that's it. Yeah, and I don't know I just, anyone over the of
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen twinkle, twinkle, little star as the, you know, top charting billboard, number one.
1: Absolutely. But watch a child, if you watch a two or three-year-old with twinkle, twinkle, little star, for them, it is top of the charts. And that's because there is some sort of fundamental, that the music bit of music is definitely incorporated in that little song, that simplistic song. But I would say that for us, we are more sophisticated. So we're looking for music that toys with our expectations more, that takes the, the rules and either bends them or even... So with music say with house music would even create slightly new rules that were superior if you like that go above the old rules this idea of sophistication is where you learn to have new and better taste it's the same thing with um, why people drink beer I don't know you know some people like to drink beer and beer is a very if you taste if you taste beer honestly you would have to say it's kind of dinner. You know, it, it's not the obvious thing that any 12-year-old would would drink. I mean, you could easily say, ugh, but if you, com- if you compare that with lemonade, right, lemonade, which is lemon, water, and sugar, right, lemonade is obviously very attractive as a human drink. Yet, the last time I would willingly have drunk lemonade, you know, if you ask me, oh, what do you want to drink? It's not going to be lemonade, right? Whereas if you offer me a really nice beer, not a bad beer, but a nice beer, I would go, oh, yes, that's much more interesting. So my tastes have become more sophisticated as have all of yours. All of us have, as we become adults, we have more, much more sophisticated tastes.
0: Would it be fair to say that with time, our tastes always evolve? Or?
1: Well, you're also what I would call, a, if you like, you're a professional with it, you're not. And you know, you're a professional within music in the sense that because you're DJing, you spend a lot of time actually thinking about the musical genre itself. And so it's much more likely that your taste will evolve very quickly as you become very sophisticated and very knowledgeable about music, and even may get a little bit bored by music that other people still find really interesting. So it's very possible. So when we talk about poppy music, you know, ordinary pop. I mean, the average 12-year-old adolescent may not have the most sophisticated and long-term knowledge of music. Whereas, you and I, especially you, if you're a DJ, right? If you're a DJ, your knowledge of music would be quite comprehensive, and you may have actually overheard or heard too often certain really simple ideas that you would think, well, you know, I could do better than this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think that is on the money. So we've talked a bit about how our musical tastes evolved and certain features that we we appreciate in music and how sometimes even though something is musically robust, like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, it doesn't mean that even though it's geared, it has that formula, it doesn't necessarily make it your favorite music. Why, Why do we... Want to listen to new music. If we do have a favorite song, can we listen to it on repeat forever? Um, I I feel for me, maybe if if I listen to a song thrice in a day, the same song, I'm like, oh, wow, I really love this song that uh, I heard it a few times. Like what really happens when we listen to new music and why do we want to?
1: Relating back to my book, you know, you are what you hear. The idea is territory. That is, music ties into and reminds us of this feeling or this identity of ourselves. So some of what we're talking about is how we have an identity that is tied in with music, in the same way that we might have an identity tied with a certain kind of clothing or a certain kind of haircut. But with music, it's very evocative. It reminds us of who we are and who, where we're supposed to be and that sort of thing. So you say that, oh, I listen to, you can listen to one piece of music twice in a day, and it, you know, that's a lot. But I remember when I was younger, I could listen to the same piece of music five, ten times in a day. You know, that I would burn out old records, basically. And then, of course, I'd move on after a couple of months. You know, and I'd think, oh, that's kind of old. I remember that. But So it's very easy for us to get, I think it's very easy to get excited about a piece of music, go with that, and listen to it more than once, and eventually to, for music to run its course. And when I say run its course, Think about how many times you've listened to any song at all, like a hundred times. There are probably lots of songs that you've listened to a hundred times. Now think about how many poems or how many novels or how many movies you've watched a hundred times. Music is different from everything else. More than anything, music uh, survives repetition. And really works well within repetition. I mean, if you're a DJ, I'm sure that there are certain songs that you've played a hundred times, and you don't, you know, you probably aren't all that tired of it, that. You can still get something uh, after a repetition from music, and part of that is because music just goes straight under the radar and into that soft spot, which says, "Hey, this is about who I am. This is me. I I like this place."
0: It's time for our next song. This is I'm losing my edge by LCD Sound System. We'll be right back after this.
2: Yeah, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge. The kids are coming up from behind. I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge to the kids from France and from London, but I was there, I was there in 1968, I was there at the first can show in Cologne. Losing my edge I'm, I'm losing, losing my, my edge To the kids whose footsteps I hear, I hear When they get on the decks I'm losing my edge
0: Why do things change why is it that if i'm i had i had this song which was playing when i had my first kiss with with my girlfriend and it was amazing and was so lovely and gave me the you know touchy feelies sadly we're no longer together and now i i hear it i'm like oh my god i hate it you know it just brings it's painful i'm like i don't want to think about it i want to like switch it off what causes that switch from something And such a drastic switch from, from something which is so enjoyable and lovely to something which is no longer wanted in my time and space.
1: That's, that's really a fabulous question. A, a lot of that's about association. So when we, when we talk about music, I mean, some of what makes music good, whatever that is, it's fundamental characteristics. That's the timbre, the pulse, the rhythm, all of the musical instruments. But a lot of it is, as you say, that those associations, the, the sort of thing they're playing our song. Your the music that they played during your first girl, your first kiss with your girlfriend, and then every time you hear that, after that, you think, you know, it. These little thoughts. They say that we have seven thoughts a minute, or something like that. That we can think things very quickly without necessarily being conscious of. It. And so that song reminds you of those emotions and that event. And you think, oh, yeah, it's really lovely. And then after the breakup, you, you have the thought. So the thought of the thought. So you have the music reminding you of the first kiss, reminding you of, oh, my girlfriend that I broke up with. And suddenly you go from music that was, they're playing our songs, to music of, oh, I've moved on. I'm so over that now. So that this change is that, you know, our associations, themselves can change. But there is also ways of tiring out music as well. I mean, we do we do seek the novel, the original, I mean, in many ways, the noradrenergic of our existence, what makes us curious and novelty-seeking in the world. And we do look for new things that surprise us and maybe break with our expectations ever so slight. Not so much that the expectation. It's not like they turn our expectations upside down, but that they take us someplace and then just make a small change that's enough for us to go, it's recognizable, but different enough to really catch our attention. And that's part of how our taste evolves.
0: Experiences and emotions can override what we should feel with that song and what that song was intended to have. I I think another example of that for me is that uh, Adagio for Strings, supposed to be one of the saddest songs of, of all time. I think that was the first song I heard did a remix of it. And that was one of the first uh, songs I heard in a proper sound system. I love that song. It makes me so happy whenever I hear it. I'm like, wow, but how can this be sad for people? And, uh, you know, it reminds me of like childhood and that good sound system every time.
1: So definitely. And I think that there's a lot to be said about Barbara Adagio for strings. Um, it, it does have the sonic element. Of an incredibly sad song. Actually, they asked Samuel Barber if it was about a funeral, and he said, no, actually, it was about a breakup. It was about a relationship that had gone wrong. But there's no question that the, the structure of the song, the fact that it's slow, that the notes build in a kind of a, in a structured way, that the, essentially, that the notes don't have an attack. Let's see what that sounds like. it has those sweeping violins that just slowly build with a legato sense. Legato is kind of like when two notes sort of glide very slowly into one another. Like this. So legato is the opposite of staccato. Legato is like a motorcycle sound. Whereas staccato is more like hammering a nail. Bang, 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 bang. Notes that are really quick and come to a quick end. The Barbara Sadagio is very slow in legato, and it creates a potentially perfect sound for sadness. There's no question that someone who wouldn't know it but was familiar with the Western canon could find the sadness in it. But your experience is exactly right, which is it's beautiful. And this is one of the things that I, I would say about why people listen to sad music. Music is fundamentally, I mean, the way we listen to it now, So it used to be all about churches and armies and rituals. But the way we listen to music now is very much about uh, leisure and the idea that people would listen to anything that's sad. I mean, why would you choose to spend your leisure time? Oh, I know, I'll be sad now. But people listen to sad music all the time. And part of the reason for that is that the, the way that music ties into, the musical emotions tie into us, Is not a direct, it's not a direct, sad music makes us sad. What I would say is that let's say that we, we believe that there's this territorial effect of music, that music either fits with what we expect in our own preferences, or music doesn't. If music doesn't fit with our preferences, if, say, you're listening to music from a culture that you don't have any musical experience with, you may think, eh, what's this? Uh, you know, And you'll feel potentially weak or uh, offended or irritated. But let's say for argument's sake that the music does fit with what you expect, the kinds of music that you like to listen to, that you think are appropriate. Th- at that point, the music can go in one of two ways. If the music happens to tap into an emotion which is appropriate to where you are now already going with it's going with an emotion you already have, you will start to follow the music. You might even entrain with the music. Sad music will make you sadder. But if you find that it's music that is within your territory and you think it's appropriate, but it's not where your emotions are now, then what the music will do is it will just empower you. It will maybe arouse you. It will make you feel confident. It will make you feel stronger. It will make you feel like, hey, this is a great country western music and I'm driving my car. I'm having a good time. And it will make you feel as though it's appropriate and that you're living the life that you want to live. Rather than making you think that you have to follow the precise emotions of the song. It becomes just, I mean, in some ways, it's just auditory cheesecake. Definitely.
0: Definitely. We're nearing the end of our time together, so I'm keen to go to our next segment and talk about the power of music.
1: Music has a lot of power, both because of its ability to elicit powerful emotions. But as we said before, we talked about, empower. it literally empowers people to feel that they are in a place that they belong. So this, again, this is group coherence. So in the song, old school silence, and I apologize, this is uh, great by All Stars, I cut out the beginning of it, and that may be something we can talk about as well. In that song, it's exactly the sort of song where you, it elicits a place, a state of mind that for me is where I want to be. I think it'd be really good to hear that right now.
0: Uh, if I also had to choose a space, this would not be a bad choice to live in. Um, definitely has some really good energy.
1: So uh, I apologize to Grey Boy and their all-stars, the musicians, because I've, cu- of course, cut out the first half of the piece. So that second half, while it is a place I'd like to live, it is, some people would say, a bit sentimental or cheesy because it's completely tonic, it's got that. It's it just says yeah about everything. It says yes to life. There's nothing challenging about it. It's just a really sweet, beautiful place. The interesting thing is the first half of the song is exactly the opposite. It's a very challenging piece with a sort of a jazz funk piece with unusual sounds. The reason it's called Silence is it's named after some bad space aliens from Scar Galactica. And so they jump from there, have this difficult, difficult song, and then ends with that one minute that you've just listened to of perfect beauty. And that's part of what I'd like to think of as uh, what makes music really powerful, is that it can take you to a place that you want to go to uh, instantly almost. Uh, I've actually run experiments where we played people music for a quarter of a second, a half a second, and five seconds. And we've said, do you like it yet? And believe it or not, after, well, after a quarter of a second, nobody knows. But after a half second, surprisingly, a large number of people actually have an opinion about the music already. And the opinion will be the same as if they were listening to it for five seconds. We often talk about how music has to be this overarching structure. But actually, the elements of music that make it territorial are obvious in a second or less. So another, so as I said before, there are all sorts of sounds that immediately take you to this beautiful place you'd like to be, which just, it just is a place where you'd like to live. And that's a very powerful thing if you're on your own. But also, in dance, when you're a DJ, that's what you're going for, are these rhythms, these grooves that everyone wants to live in together. And they're all there shaking and dancing at the same time. And what you're doing as a DJ is you're coordinating people's activity. In some ways, you're the leader. You're using the music to create group coherence.
0: And with that kind of power, is there some responsibility that comes with it?
1: There's definitely uh, risks associated with music. So the short answer is yes. (laughs) I do think that musicians should be thinking of MDJs, you're responsible too. <laughs> There's a, a very famous song, which was called Gloomy Sunday, which was written in the 1930s and was associated, I, I'm not sure if I should even say this on your, but it was associated with a long series of suicides. The people left the, the lyrics of the song as part of their suicide. Perez, the um, composer of the piece, himself felt an enormous weight and burden because this happened over and over again that this piece of music which made him a hit was associated with this something that beckoned people the wrong way and it is true that people can take music the wrong way
0: Harry it's been a real pleasure having you here I think with your award-winning research team I'm quite interested in knowing what does the future look like for you
1: So thanks, Hassan. Yeah, the COVID is coming to an end. I've been for the last two years, essentially had to do all of my psychology research, essentially online. But I'm still recruiting graduate students, postgraduate students for doing research on psychology projects. We're looking at how people think and the conscious, the experience of consciousness and how, I mean, we even have opportunities for doing work on how music intervenes in that and how different elements uh, affect. One of the things that we're interested in is mind wandering. This is kind of daydreaming and things like that. The other thing that I'm doing is my third book is about to come out. It's called Technologies in Biomedical and Life Sciences Education, and it's coming out probably in April from the American Physiological Society. So that's good for teachers, but... For those people who are artistically inclined, I'm never interested in the book that's about to come out. I'm always interested in the next book I'm about to write. And my next book is probably going to be a cultural commentary. And what I'm looking for is a collaborator who's a very good cartoonist. Somebody who does very clean, tidy cartoons and drawings to illustrate so that I can add a little bit, a sense of humor to what are otherwise quite difficult topics. I'm looking to collaborate with people who are sort of arty.
0: And where would someone who's interested be able to reach you?
1: If you go online, you'll find me listed with my university at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. The best way of getting in touch with me is via email at the university. Or you could follow my Twitter account at Dr. D-R Harry, H-A-R-R-Y Witchell, w i t c h e l at Dr. Harry Witchell on Twitter.
0: And if you like what we talked about today and you want to read Dr. Mitchell's book, it's available on Amazon and uh, Mr. Bezos will be happy to deliver it to your doorstep if you so wish.
1: Jeff and I are like this, you know, we're really (laughs) close. He's thinking about taking me with him on one of his space journeys, not.
0: If you enjoyed today's show, you can always give us some feedback that's most welcome. You can find Nirvana Principal on Instagram, We're also on Twitter. If you have any guests you feel, any topics you want us to cover, that's also very welcome. Thank you for Melodic Distraction Radio for giving us this space to share our thoughts and interests with you.